Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Just want to remind you that Strong Towns, the book, is now available by pre-order. You're going to want to get in on that. Now we've got some special things going on for those of you that uh, get the book early. We've got some stuff we're working on that we're going to be releasing to you. So get the book, go to strongtowns.org. You can get it through there. You can sign up for the extras and look out because we're going to be coming to a neighborhood near you soon. We've got a a nine uh, region book tour. It's going to get started in mid-September and we're looking to extend that now into 2020 because of all the demand. So strongtowns.org. Sign up to get the book, Strong Towns. Get two and give one to a friend. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. If you've been with us for a while, or if you've gone to any of the talks that I've done around North America, or listened to this podcast for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is one of my favorite cities. And it's not my favorite because it's a perfect place. It's really not a perfect place. It's a place that has, has a lot of struggles and a lot of things it's dealing with. But it's one of my favorite places because of really their attitude, their approach, the way that they have gone about kind of mobilizing people, mobilizing themselves and seeing the opportunity in the small things, the things that many of our places overlook. I met years ago a guy named Doug McGowan, who at that point was part of a mayor's innovation team. He's now the chief operating officer for the city of Memphis, and I've got him on the line today, Doug Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here with you. I want to give people a little sense of your background as well. When I met you, uh, you seem like a military guy to me. I'm a former Army myself, and I'm, you can kind of pick them out. Give us your background. What brought you to the place where you're starting to work for the city of Memphis? Well, I'm glad to be here first and blessed to have the opportunity to serve the citizens of Memphis. But uh, I came from a career of service. I spent 27 years in the United States Navy. My trade was aviator, but I was a professional naval officer during that period of time. And my last job, I landed here in Millington, which is a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. There's a, a naval installation there. I was the commanding officer of that installation. After 27 years, uh, kids were getting a little older, wanted to settle down. We decided try to decide where we wanted to live in retirement. We had a lot of choices, you know, San Diego, Virginia Beach, Pensacola, Rhode Island, Colorado Springs. Unilaterally, uh, my kids said, uh, and unanimously, they all said, we want to stay in Memphis, Tennessee. We love it here. So that's what we did. And uh, then I set about the course of what am I going to do to continue my service, and I want to serve my community uh, like I serve the country. So that's exactly what I set out to do. I was fortunate enough to find the opportunity to jump into the mayor's office with the mayor's innovation delivery team. I did that for about four years and then uh, was blessed when the new mayor was elected, who had been a former city council person that I was working with while I was on the innovation team, asked me to join his team as chief operating officer. And we hit the treadmill with it running at full speed and haven't let up since. Let's talk a little bit about that mayor's innovation team. How, how did that come about? And talk a little bit about the things that you were working to accomplish and some of the things you did accomplish with that group. Yeah, well, it was a really great opportunity. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies 
uh, invested in cities. They what they their theory was that cities often don't have the capacity to think deeply about just one or two problems. They're often dealing with myriad of problems, and they can only get an inch deep in those. But because they're a mile wide, the idea was to add some capacity to cities to focus on uh, just one or two things very deeply. In Memphis, Tennessee, we were opportunity to focus on youth gun violence, and the other piece was neighborhood economic vitality. In the youth gun violence space, we did uh, kind of bring a public health approach to that, some new ways of thinking, bringing a new street intervention team into the fray uh, that was a missing piece, and talking about some of the youth opportunities uh, that were uh, kind of the prevention side of the house. Uh, A lot of great data there, a lot of great progress, and as a result, uh, we've continued to see violent crime decrease. That doesn't necessarily mean the homicide rate is decreasing because what we found through our work and through our data is that almost all of those are people that know each other, not random, but what we're working on is just general uh, violent crime, and we did see some reductions there and continue to enjoy that. Uh, The neighborhood economic vitality piece is really what uh, you and I connected on, Chuck. Um, we were trying to find out what happened to our core neighborhoods and how do we bring back some vitality to those neighborhoods. And one of the key things that Bloomberg allowed us to do by having giving us the capacity was really have a fo- heavy focus on the data. And that's one area that this city was weak on, was actually having a, uh, a treasure trove of data uh, to analyze. And so we put our resources to use to ensure that we could begin gathering data, begin making some conclusions to support our work on neighborhood economic vitality. And quite frankly, uh, that's when we began this discussion about what have we wrought from 40 years of uh, eastward expansion in our case and doubling the size of our city, yet keeping our population flat. So to say that plainly, we went from 170 square miles to 340 square miles, but we had no net growth in population. That was a stark reality that we faced only, it was only possible by the fact that we were, had invested in the innovation team and been able to give, you know, the opportunity to look deeply at the data and make some conclusions. And so that's really one of the key findings of why we are where we are today with some of the things we're changing in Memphis, Tennessee. I remember one of the first times we met, you, you kind of drew a parallel with Detroit and said one of Detroit's big problems is they have way too much area and not enough people. And I can't remember the exact ratios, but, but I remember that the situation of Memphis, in a sense, was even worse than that in terms of those ratios. Is that right? That is correct. Obviously, they've had dramatic population loss, but they are geographically about one half the size of Memphis, Tennessee. So uh, Memphis, Tennessee is as large as the five boroughs of Manhattan, 340 square miles. Uh, yet we have a population of 650,000 people. Detroit has 750,000 people in less than half that area. So you get a real sense of, uh, you know, just how spread out we are. Certainly not the largest. There are other uh, large metro areas. I know Jacksonville's relatively large or much bigger and Phoenix as well. But uh, generally those are metro areas, not uh, just cities. Right. When I was there meeting with you all for the first time, I have to say it astounded me both the quality of the neighborhoods in terms of their, their layout, their design, the people who live there, these places that I think on paper were struggling. And when you go out there, you know, look like they're struggling. In contrast to this vast, vast swath of stuff where the investments had been made in the community, you guys have a second beltway, which kind of blew my mind. One of the early things we looked at was this map overlay where we took the neighborhoods 
essentially where people in your community were struggling. And then we overlaid that with the places where your regional transportation authority was planning to make the largest investments, billions of dollars of transportation investments. Can you describe that mismatch a little bit between basically where your energy and resources were going and where your people actually are? And that was really one of the key things that we found is uh, putting together those visualizations of the data uh, was pretty, I think, profound for a lot of people. And just a couple of things. Number one, in those neighborhoods that you talked about that were struggling, kind of those first ring suburbs from, from years ago, which we would call kind of downtown neighborhoods now, walkable, compact, even though much of it's single-family home, it is relatively dense with a number of you know very small parcels, uh, though the values of those individual homes are very small uh, compared to the outer suburbs where the value of those homes are very large, but they're also on huge, large lots. In the areas where we kind of believe the prosperity was, when you look at the revenues that come into the city, it's actually the areas that you know, were perceived to be struggling, those very small lots, since there's so many more of them, are actually producing more value for the city than these far-flung, uh, large-lot suburban areas. And then we also overlaid the cost to deliver services on top of that. And what we found is, obviously, it's much more efficient to deliver services close in. This is not, obviously, rocket science, but it, when you visualize it, uh, the value and the efficiency, it's pretty clear that you need to change the way you're doing things. And what we had been doing was, when you mentioned that about the transit system, was more of the same. We would have more suburban development, and then there would be a demand for us to chase that with a transit route uh, that would serve that area. But with flat revenues, that means that something else has to give. So we had this nearly 100% coverage uh, model for our transit system, which meant that our ridership model was not as, almost had no attention paid to it. So we had this map that covered the entire uh, city, but didn't serve anyone particularly well. At best, we had 30-minute headways on our best route. In some places, you know, two-hour and three-hour headways. Other routes that served, you know, only ran twice per day. But we sure covered the entire service area. So when you look at how transit was spread out like that. Uh, we were continuing to make those kinds of investments in our sewer system, which we know were driving that kind of development. All of that concluded with the previous mayor and this current mayor saying, we have to do something differently. And so while the mayor that I work for today was on the city council, they were made aware of this data and actually made a determination, the very first decision to not continue extending sewers. There was a planned development of extending the sewers into unincorporated part of the county. And based on the data we presented, they decided not to do that. And when Mayor Strickland, our current mayor, came into office, he said, I really want to take a look at how we have grown our city and how we're going to continue to grow our city, because I'm not sure that we've uh, reaped the benefits of the pattern of growth we had in the past. His vision when we came in was that we needed a new plan for the city of Memphis. We had not had a comprehensive plan for 38 years. The previous plan was adopted in 1981, and that plan actually called for the dramatic expansion of roads, sewers, and the provision of utilities in the unincorporated areas so that we would see growth. That was the goal of the plan. Well, we executed it pretty precisely, and we got exactly what we asked for. We got a heck of a lot of suburban growth. Uh, and as a result, we're a city that's probably too big. We've outgrown our ability to serve anybody very effectively, 
And so the mayor said, I want a new comprehensive plan, and the vision for our plan is that we are going to grow up and not out. I want to talk a little bit about annexation. This is one of the things you all described to me that blew my mind, kind of how the annexation was used in the short term to to balance kind of near-term budgets year after year after year and created this, this kind of pyramid scheme almost of, you know, we're grabbing new land and we're making promises on infrastructure and then oh my gosh, next year we got to grab more because we're further in in hawk in a sense. Can you describe that and kind of, I think, the realization that people got to at a certain point? I think it's it's really a both and, Chuck, because as I said, in our 1981 comprehensive plan that was called Memphis 2000, it actually called for the development of infrastructure so that we could have new suburban-style development so that we could annex it as a way to grow the city. And, and I believe that everybody firmly believed that was the right thing to do. I, I, I didn't live in that time, and I can't understand the circumstances they were operating under. I believe in many places in America were growing that way because they thought that was the right thing to do. Kind of the assumed state, however, was that everybody else would stay where they were, that this would be new growth, uh, so that you know what was once a densely packed downtown core area would stay that way. But what ended up happening is, we provided new opportunities for individuals who were seeking to either leave their neighborhood or to find a new opportunity uh, where houses are cheap and land is plentiful uh, to have the American dream. And that's actually what we saw was that people actually filtered out of downtown and into those new neighborhoods. Um, and so we kind of diluted the density that we had. And so that was kind of an intentional piece. And I think as it went along through the decades, uh, It may not have been a stark reality to anyone that we weren't retaining that population and tax base, but there was always hope if revenues were not growing in the way that we anticipated they were that, well, we know there's another area that's going to be annexed. And so you began to rely on that next annexation as a continuing source of revenue growth. So, you know, we have the benefit of 50 years of hindsight, but at the time, I think it could be kind of a double-edged sword. We were trying to drive new growth with new neighborhoods. But then we began to rely on it to get the kinds of revenue growth we needed just to sustain what we had already built because we were getting bigger and bigger. And so, of course, we needed new dollars in to sustain what we grew. I know that you've described that as a Ponzi scheme, and I think in the aggregate that's very likely what it is. I think it was just not intentional by anyone. It was what we thought was the right thing to do. But we're looking forward to not back necessarily. We just want to learn the lessons from that data and figure out how we move forward. I don't want to pick on Memphis because I think Memphis is no different than many other cities in this regard, but Memphis does have some notable examples of where the thought was the big project will be this catalyst that will then fix kind of some of these smaller ills. If we can just get this big thing, there will essentially be a trickle-down effect that will help these neighborhoods and help these poor communities and provide jobs and what have you. Can you talk a little bit about the history of that in Memphis and maybe how some of that disappointment over the fact that those things maybe didn't work out as planned has kind of changed the mentality now in regards to those kind of projects? I mean, I think that's the natural course of things. It's easy to get excited about the big uh, project that comes with the promise of a thousand jobs. And and so certainly I think everyone's excited when that happens, but we should equally be excited about you know, the 100 companies that grow by 10 jobs because that's much more 
resilient to any changes in the economy. But quite frankly, I think uh, we had not had been as intentional about that, and we hadn't didn't really have the capacity to think in those terms. It's, you handle the one big deal at a time. Um, there were uh, several promises of, of the one big thing that could make a big change, but you know this is an economy with you know 650,000 people, and there are 300,000 working folks here. So you know a thousand jobs in the grand scheme of things is not uh, a gigantic impact on the overall workforce, but it does grab people's attention. And I'm not going to knock anybody who wants to bring new jobs to Memphis, but we need to think on the other end of the scale too. Um, we need to be sure that we're getting what we're investing in. And I think you know, we've had a recent issue that was in the news about Electrolux before we had any kind of accountability and clawbacks. Uh, at the height of the of the big recession, uh, there was an opportunity for Electrolux to move to Memphis, and there was a lot of cash grants given by both the state and the city for them to come here at the promise of 1,500 or so jobs. And uh, just this past year, they decided they're going to close the plant because they they weren't making the money. Uh, they were you know, the rise of some competition, et cetera. So uh, while it was a big deal at the time, and while it was again, I think people believe they were doing the the very best thing that they could in, on behalf of the city. Um, we didn't have all the provisions in place to protect our citizenry. So, and I think that's the danger. When you think at smaller scale, uh, you can you don't perhaps have to incentivize as much. Uh, you don't have to worry about protecting uh, everybody as much because the market can balance it out. But uh, we are moving in that direction now. Um, we're thinking, again, about our neighborhoods. We're not looking for the one big thing, but we're looking for uh, continued momentum. Uh, the mayor says it today that Memphis has momentum. Uh, you know, $15 billion of either recently completed, underway, or soon to be started economic development. Uh, and quite frankly, if you added up all the big-name projects we have, it doesn't come close to that amount of money. What really adds up are all the, the uh, much, much smaller projects that are being invested in uh, that are really what make uh, a city rich and uh, to have uh, kind of segmentation of the economic development in your community, which is really what you need. I want to focus a little bit on that, that size of investment. And I want to draw on the leadership there a little bit in Memphis. For me, as someone coming in and getting to know you and getting to know your team, and also just spending time in the community at large, what I have found sets Memphis apart is the leadership, the vision that leadership has, and I think the willingness of that leadership to, I don't want to say admit mistakes, because I, I, I think that that's maybe doing a disservice, but to not maybe cling to you know, the past, but to say, okay, we're going to have to rethink things here and, and reinvent ourselves. The other part of this though, there is a sense that I get throughout the community at large. And this might be a byproduct of a certain level of desperation. I mean, Memphis is in many ways, a very poor place that doesn't come through in desperation terms. It really comes through in this kind of wellspring of social capital. I, I've never experienced a place where you can mobilize as many people at the neighborhood level as quickly to do positive things as in Memphis, Tennessee. Can you talk a little bit about the leadership at the city level and also at the neighborhood level and how that has been part of this shift in philosophy for you? Absolutely. Well, it kind of goes back to what we talked about. You know, we did not have the capacity to really understand 
uh, empirically what was happening. We had a lot of, uh, you know, subjective forecasting about what had happened and, and, and looking back at why things happened that way. But our current mayor, Jim Strickland, is very passionate. You know, he echoes that sentiment, you know, in God we trust, but all others bring data, which I think was famously said by, you know, Michael Bloomberg and others. Yeah. And one of the things that we had benefit that spun out of the innovation team was part of our work, as I said, was looking at the data. But I said, well, that's great for these two projects, but how does the city really benefit from this, for, from, you know, paving streets to running parks to the police department, fire department, those kinds of things. So we did not have an office of performance management. We didn't have anybody dedicated to collecting, analyzing, and producing uh, reports about what the data was showing us. And so when our current mayor was on city council, uh, and then when he became the mayor, we he approved it when he was on city council, the formation of the office of performance management, staffed with five full-time people in the city of Memphis. That was through a grant, and then when he became mayor in 2016, we baked it in our budget, and so since then we've had an Office of Performance Management, their independent data management and analytics uh, division of city government, and every month we come together with the mayor and review the dashboard, uh, and it's you know 70 or 80 key metrics that keep Memphis on track, and many of the things we talked about are those metrics. So we can keep a finger on the pulse of how things are going, uh, and it's all based on an objective look at the data. So uh, I think you talked about you know lessons learned of the past or mistakes. I think what we're doing is reacting to the information that we're given, and we have much better information now. We actually have empirical data that shows uh, what we are receiving for the investments we are making. And so I think you're right by saying course correction. We receive input by good data, and we make decisions. It's much easier to make good decisions when you have uh, the data that's driving you in a particular direction. So that's number one. Uh, And I think the people have a core belief because we also have an open data portal. We share those reports with everybody in the public and anybody is welcome to attend and they can analyze the data on their own. The second piece that you talked about is uh, kind of the grit and grind of Memphis that we are also proud of. Uh, we are a big city, but we are literally one degree of separation away from making an impact. If you know, you know, one person in the city of Memphis, they can connect you to somebody where you can plug in immediately and make an impact. And our ability for citizens to reach the mayor or to reach leaders is so much easier than it is in other cities. And we're very proud of that fact about our authenticity here. And as you said, we may be financially poor, but we are rich in so many other ways with our talented citizenry uh, as a wellspring of innovation that brought us everything from the modern supermarket to the modern, uh, you know, hotel in the form of Piggly Wiggly and Holiday Inn to modern logistics at FedEx and so many other innovations that came out of the city. But our people are what drive the city. And uh, one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier, Chuck, is the, is the fact that we're doing our first comprehensive plan in more than 30 years. It's called Memphis 3.0. It coincides with our bicentennial, which is this May. It's our third, guiding us into our third century. And uh, as I said before, we may not do a comprehensive plan very often, but we typically execute them particularly well. And so as evidenced by our uh, last one where we extended all the sewers. So this one, we're guided by the mayor's direction that we will grow up and not out, and that we will focus our investment around anchors. And those anchors will be in every neighborhood in the city of Memphis, uh, and those will be informed by the citizens. And so we had approximately 500 meetings as over the two-year process while we were doing Memphis 3.0. 15,000 Memphians attended those meetings and informed the plan. 
which I would put on par with anybody's comprehensive plan in any city for their level of citizen participation. And we had such rich uh, information that came from the citizens that they're the ones that helped identify the anchors, both the economic anchors and the neighborhood centers, the neighborhood crossroads, those kinds of things where we can focus our investments. Instead of trying to pour investments across the entirety of the city, we can now focus on the anchors. At the same time, we did an economic study that focused on the sectors of the economy that we should be looking to grow businesses and we should be looking to attract businesses. When you tie anchors to sectors, you have a pretty focused approach to how you're going to move your city forward. And tied to that is Transit Vision 3.0 that responds to those anchors and that pattern of growth. After all, Memphis 3.0 really is a land use plan that talks about how and where we want to nurture neighborhoods, we want to accelerate neighborhoods, and where we want to see some stability. But now our transit system can actually preemptively respond to the growth patterns of the city instead of reactively trying to be routed all over the city. And our citizens also helped inform those 15,000 citizens said, we need to be something more like a 60% ridership, 40% coverage model instead of your current 100% coverage model. Those are bold decisions that you have to make as a city, like where are you going to go and who gets the high-frequency transit and who doesn't get transit after that. So we're pretty proud of the citizens about their participation. They have literally informed a plan that will guide our city for the next 10 or 20 years, cast a vision for what the transit system should look like, and have identified the anchors where we should be putting our investment in our neighborhoods, and that's unprecedented in our city. Doug, I, I want to ask you about some of your poorer neighborhoods and how the strategy aligns there. One of the things that I was struck with, and I, I mentioned this earlier in our conversation here, was how poorly the investments that were being made in the city were aligned with not, not only where the bulk of people live, but where the bulk of people who were struggling lived. When we overlay on top of that, you know, the places where you were essentially doing well financially as a community and doing poor, you were making a lot of investments in places that were negative returning. I mean, the, the second beltway and all the stuff out there is a, is a great example of that. How has this approach realigned with where people in the community are and where their struggles are? How is this kind of realigned, I think, the mission of the community towards leaving fewer people behind, not abandoning neighborhoods where there's a lot of struggling people living in them? I'll, I'll use our anchor strategy to focus the conversation on that. Uh, we have three kinds of anchors in our plan. One is called nurture, one is uh, stabilize, and one is accelerate. And so I think what you're talking about is that in many cases, we had put lots of our resources into other areas where we thought we should be putting them to accelerate economic growth. Um, an area where, boy, we'll put a lot of money in and we'll get a lot of money out. And I'm just going to speak in very general terms here. Uh, and the thought was, well, gee, if you put a lot of investment into a neighborhood that is struggling, you're not going to get any money out. I think we've had a paradigm shift here in a, in a thought shift of, you know, is that a bad thing? Um, in a nurture anchor, what we're saying is 
the natural course of private investment may not immediately think of any particular neighborhood as the place to go. And so we may need to double down the public investment in that area, knowing that for every dollar in, we're not going to get a dollar out immediately. But that's an investment we have to make in the infrastructure and the quality of the housing, of the opportunities for the individuals to live, so that we can now show that uh, the public sector cares about this place, that the citizens care about this place, and it is worthy of private investment. And you know that you may have to put, you know, I'll say it this way, you may have to put $3 in to get $1 out. On the accelerate anchors, um, things are going pretty well. Um, you want to put a dollar in and maybe get $4 out uh, of the accelerate anchors, but you want to sustain those areas and keep that momentum moving. And then there are areas of the cities that are really sustained where people said, hey, look, uh, things are pretty stable here, and we just want to keep them from, you know, we've kind of built them out to max capacity. We just want to keep them where they are. Uh, and what that really does is talk about apportioning the limited funds that you have and knowing that you do need to double down in some of those nurture anchors so that you can get economic development. It won't happen overnight, but nor will it ever happen if you don't make any public sector investments. And quite frankly, that is not how we had been thinking before. Uh, we believe that we had to peanut butter spread the investment equally over the entire city and, as you said, uh, put the majority of, I guess, disposable income into the big projects. But that's not what we're doing now. We are focusing investments in those anchor areas. And let me be clear, we are just at the point where our city council is going to adopt the plan for the first time. Uh, so we have don't have a lot of experience under our belt with the actual execution, but this is how we're thinking. So we do have the opportunity to put additional public investment and incentive into those anchors because we know that that was identified by the neighborhoods as a place that they want to nurture. Uh, in those areas that are accelerate, we know that we don't have to necessarily. They're kind of blowing and going right now. We just want to uh, add to that. And for the nurture anchor, or for, excuse me, for the sustain anchors, uh, you know, th that's equally as important. Why would we want to, uh, you know, expend significant money that we don't have? in order to make a big change in a neighborhood when that is not what is welcome. So it really does give us a framework for how we uh, take our limited public dollars, how we leverage them with philanthropic dollars and private dollars uh, to make a change in our neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods, we have about 65 neighborhoods that are identified as individual discrete neighborhoods, uh, span the kind of the economic spectrum. Um, and every single place has an anchor that's been identified by the neighbors. You and I were both standing there uh, next to A.C. Wharton, the former mayor, when he got up and, and made the statement in front of a, a large group of people that Memphis was done annexing property. There would be no more big annexations and the city was going to go in a, a different direction. You've gone in a very different direction and now you've had a change in administration and it seems like that direction has accelerated. Can you talk a little bit about the transition now that's happened in regards to annexation and horizontal expansion? This really is kind of a one, two, three punch change in the way we think about our city. Um, first was Memphis 3.0 and the mayor saying we're going to grow up and not out. The next was the sewer policy where we, before we actually adopted our comprehensive plan, uh, we uh, made a policy decision that we would no longer extend sewers into the unincorporated parts of the county, nor would we accept any new uh, flows from new developments in any of our other suburban communities that we serve. Uh, we needed to preserve some for us to grow in the core of the city, and, and if I gave it away on the, to everybody else outside of the city, I would never have any room to grow. So that was a pretty broad-ranging and politically charged discussion. 
but we've worked our way through there. That's the new norm now, so we've preserved some capacity for us to grow. Uh, we have a very large sewer system, 3,300 miles of, of distribution system and two very large plants. Um, we're putting about a half a billion dollars of renovation into one plant, and we'll put a half a billion into the other to sustain our capability. So the one, two, three punch was the comprehensive plan that says we're growing up and not out. The second piece was uh, a sewer policy that ensures that we drive development and preserve development opportunity in the city of Memphis. And the third was what you talked about, Chuck. Prior Mayor uh, A.C. Wharton said we're not going to annex anymore. Uh, Mayor Jim Strickland came in and said, you know what, I think the city has actually grown a little too large and has outstripped our capacity to serve it very well. So uh, he had also been privy to the data that we had produced way back in the day on the innovation delivery team back in 2012 and 2013, the data that you and I had just talked about, and said, I want you to explore what would happen if we de-annexed several areas of the city. I don't want to lose any firefighters or any police officers. I don't want to lose any park staff or anything else. But I want to redirect the energy of those folks back into the core of the city. So I realize fully that we'll probably lose a little revenue because some of those areas are newer. Uh, but on balance, it's the right thing to do so that we can shrink the footprint of our city and provide better service to our citizens. And so uh, at the same time, we had some state legislation that was being considered uh, our state was actually having a different view on annexation as well. And in fact, um, there was a very conservative faction at the state that wanted to put forth legislation that would have allowed citizens to unilaterally de-annex themselves from a city all the way, for anybody who was annexed, you know, all the way back to 1998. In Memphis, Tennessee, that would have been relatively cataclysmic if uh, for everybody, because if that would have been 110,000 people in our city if they had all unilaterally chosen to leave. Uh, and our county was not positioned to pick up the services for those people who live kind of a municipal lifestyle. Uh, so we worked hard with our state and said, uh, we would, this is about local control. We grew this way locally, so we'd like to retrograde locally. And uh, the state worked with us on that. We put forth a plan. We had a, about a two-year time period where we worked with our city council, the county commission who runs the unincorporated part of the, part of the county on a plan for how we could kind of, using data, gracefully de-annex several areas of our city so that we could focus growth on the core of the city. There were several neighborhoods that were not happy when they were annexed. Uh, they were considered for de-annexation. The, the strategy that we used was to look at areas that vocally wanted to be de-annexed, areas where we had very low density, and areas where uh, it was incredibly hard for us to provide city services. Those are the three criteria. We looked at the entirety of the city and we settled on six areas for consideration. At the net, our city council has just recently approved in three rounds the annexation of fully 10% of the land mass of the city of Memphis. Uh, we lose less than 1% of our population and we lose less than 1% of our annual uh, property tax revenues. We put that transition plan into place. So the very first de-annexation happens this January of 2020. The next and final de-annexation happens January of 2021. Uh, the citizens in those areas are going to be responsible for some of the debt service that was incurred while they were citizens of Memphis. And so there will be a little bit of a payback uh, to the city through a supplemental tax bill just to ensure that everybody, you know, just like if you go through a divorce, uh, the credit card bill doesn't magically disappear, both parties are equally responsible for that. That's what we're talking about here. But 
when that is complete, the city will be 10% smaller, our police force will be just as big, fire department just as big, and we'll have uh, that many less miles uh, to serve uh, with the public services we have. Now, is that going to change the world alone? No. But as you and I just talked about, Chuck, there, there are no silver bullets. There is no one thing that's going to save a city. It's a comprehensive approach to, you know, finding the economy that is the right fit for your community and being very, very focused on trying to drive that kind of economy, finding the points in the neighborhood where you should be making those investments so that everybody feels like they're a part of it, ensuring that your service delivery model is the most efficient it could possibly be. And sometimes that means losing areas of the city where it costs you more to deliver services than you collect collecting property taxes, and that's exactly what we're doing. All of those together, none of those individually is a gigantic move, but all of those together, I think, add up to real momentum in a city that could really use it. And so I think you said it pretty well, Chuck. It is a very different day in Memphis, Tennessee than it was just a few years ago. Uh, the mayor says all the time, we have momentum, and we think momentum in the right direction. I want to pause here for a second, because I, I think there's a lot of cities that can look at the math the way that you've looked at it and come to the same kind of technical conclusions. Boy, if we could shrink the city by 10% in size, we would be money further ahead. We'd be able to provide a lot better service. And oh, by the way, the people in that 10% don't really want to be part of the city maybe anyway. This seems like something that technically we could do. I feel like there's a difference here, though, in leadership, because most places that do this technical exercise then freak out because they'll say, I can't stand up and say this. I can't go out and have this conversation. The community, you know, will look at this as a retreat, as defeat, as something, you know, a failure. How does your leadership get beyond that? How does your conversation become mature enough where you can have those kind of what I think are very thoughtful, uh, nuanced kind of conversations. I wish I could say that it was easy, and I wish I could say that we had the magic formula, but I, I would suggest that it's a lot of intestinal fortitude and being willing to have that tough discussion with everybody. Because, look, uh, you know, sure, we looked at the data, uh, but one other piece of data is that, that, yes, in the near term, it will be a very short-term loss of net revenue to the city of Memphis because, as I said, we're not going to lose any police or firefighters, and we're not going to cut any public works people out. So our costs are the same. So will we lose revenue year over year for the first few years? Yeah, we will. Will the payback of the debt service from those areas uh, cover the cost of that? Yeah, for the most part, it will. Uh, will our economy grow us out of it by the time the payback's over? For sure. But obviously, our economy was going to continue to grow anyway. And if we didn't do this, we wouldn't have that loss of revenue. So it is a very real conversation when you're talking to your elected officials, specifically your city council persons, uh, in our case, and our county commissioners. Uh, our county commissioners were worried about, is this going to be a net cost increase for them to serve these individuals now that they're going to be in unincorporated Shelby County? Uh, so you're doing you're you're threading the needle, but to your point, the data pointed us in the right direction. If we did not have good data that showed us that this was the right thing to do, we wouldn't be able to have the conversation as richly as we had. Specifically, if we didn't have the the visualizations that showed the density of the city, the migration of people out, and how we went from a city that once had four thousand to five thousand people per square mile, and now we're down to like eighteen hundred people per square mile what that does to us and how hard that is to make a transit system work 
uh, how you show a transit system that sprawls, you know, with the same amount of money, same amount of buses, serving twice the physical geographic area, what that does to your individuals when you show the decrease in, in headways, it's pretty stark. It really does hit you in the face about what you have done uh, by this pattern of growth. Again, everybody believed they were doing the right thing. We just didn't maintain the population base in the core of the city. I, I think one thing that is also uh, one other bit of data that I didn't talk about. I went back to 40 years, to 1978, uh, when we were doing this in 2018, and looked at the city's budget. And I, I wanted to figure out the percentage of the city's budget that was spent on every service. And back in 1978, we spent about 48% of the city's budget on public safety, 28% on the quality of life things like parks, libraries, community centers. And we spent another good 20% on public work, you know, maintaining the roads and filling the potholes and those kinds of things. In 2018, our budget looked very different. 70% of our dollars were spent on public safety, and that was simply to afford the number of police officers and cars and fire trucks to cover an enormous city. But our portionment of money that went to parks, libraries, and community centers had decreased to 8%. In 40 years, we went from 28% of the budget to 8% of the budget on the quality of life amenities because something had to give. And when people are faced with that, with a budget seeing we're spending, you now public safety is incredibly important. It's probably job number one uh, for local governments to perform. But when you see that you've lost opportunity to invest uh, in the quality of life amenities that people expect, it really is testament to um, your ability to continue to service the city in a very effective way. So we use that data. The second thing I will say is that we did have a uh, we called it a task force. Many people would call it something else, but it was a joint city-county task force. Uh, had business leaders on there, had people from the city and the county staffs on there. Uh, we brought a few consultants in to talk to us about the direction we wanted to go, and we had a very frank conversation about uh, why didn't we include some areas, why did we include other areas, and then I had the task of trying to take these recommendations through city council and get city councilors who are looking to grow the city's budget so they can invest more in their neighborhoods and convince them that it was the right thing to do for the strategic and the long-term future of the city of Memphis to make this decision. I don't think it would have been possible if we weren't also going to had a comprehensive plan that said how we were going to fundamentally change the way we behaved, uh, nor a transit plan that showed how we would serve the new area, uh, nor uh, changing the other policies that said we weren't going to promote growth in other areas except for the city of Memphis. So we had a few things going for us that we put together in order to have this conversation because I don't know that absent anything else that you could just have the conversation about de-annexation. I think it has to be, uh, for it to be successful, you probably have to have uh, a comprehensive look at how you're going to change things fundamentally in order to do that. Is it perfect? Probably not. Um, but is it 80% right? At least, yeah. I think. Yeah. And if we aggressively execute it, I think we're going to be successful. But the bottom line is, as much as anything, we're trying to drive new energy into the core and having a plan that says we're building up and not out and a strong statement that we're actually de-annexing some of the areas that are not as productive for the city uh, because they're hard to serve, I think is a strong testament to how we're moving the city forward. Right. I want to ask you one last thing. And it's kind of one of these uh, squishy things. I, I was giving a talk once and someone during the Q&A got up and, and said, you know, voiced her frustration with life and, 
you know, what do I do with my life? I want to go somewhere where I can make a difference. And my answer was, you should move to Memphis. <laughs> you should go to Memphis. There's so many exciting things going on there that you could be part of. And when you hit the ground there, you can be part of this great city. And I wound up getting a little bit cast, you know, chewed out by my sponsor afterwards because they're like, no, we want that person to stay here. And, <laughs> and I, I, it just came out of my mouth. It was one of these things. And I find myself saying this a lot to people, you know, you, you should really look at Memphis. I have a number of friends that have moved to Memphis and many, many more who are talking about it. Talk a little bit about the energy that you have not just, you know, I think the official, the leadership yeah. groups and this, but just there is something about life in Memphis, the people, the businesses, the entrepreneurial spirit, the, the block level music and arts and creativity. You've lived a lot of places. You've been around the world. What is it about this place that just makes it a little bit different? I'm incredibly proud uh, to call this my home now. Uh, and you're right, it was the intangibles when we moved here that caused my family to say uh, unanimously they wanted to stay. But we call it grit and grind here. Uh, we are a little proud of our gritty side, that yeah, we do have some challenges. We have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder there. We actually like the grittiness, but we grind it out. We're a bootstrap city. FedEx started on a shoestring, came to Memphis, and uh, they bootstrapped themselves to the, you know, the leading logistics provider in the globe. Um, there are so many other examples of entrepreneurship here where things were born here out of that grit and grind spirit. Uh, but you said it right, and I, I mentioned earlier, there are no six degrees of separation in Memphis, Tennessee. It's one or two because we are a very large city, but we're, uh, we have a small town feel here. The energy is just absolutely incredible because people do embody that spirit here and they know that they can make a difference, a very real difference in their community. We're reachable. Uh, you know, all of our public meetings are open, and so people have absolutely no problems coming to voice their opinion. But more than that, people are really invested in making their city a better place and trying to locate here. We just had something called the Civic Commons here that was funded by the Kresge Foundation, and uh, investing in places where people from every socioeconomic path can come together. And, and we created this place called the River Garden, through that grant, we just had people from all over the country come uh, who are also Civic Commons grant recipients. And um, out of that meeting, we had three people who said seriously that they're going to move to Memphis based on their weekend-long experience here. And they said, I had no idea Memphis was so cool. We are at a precipice. We have real momentum here. We have all of that investment coming. We want to make sure we preserve that authenticity. We are committed to ensuring that you know, downtown and the core are a place for everyone to live, and we work very hard uh, with our entitlement folks at HUD to ensure that we have a place for super affordable housing for, so that literally everybody can live in the core. We have the opportunity to build a city in that way. So I couldn't be more proud of our city because of the momentum. Uh, it's not hard for me to see why people would want to come and live here because it is a city so rich in all the things that you just mentioned, from music to culture to the wonderful green tree canopy here and the wonderful natural amenities that we have here. And quite frankly, we're our own worst critics in Memphis, Tennessee. Other people come here and go, your city is awesome. I think that tide is changing as well. Civic pride is on the rise. 
And, and I'll credit our mayor a lot for this, uh, not just because I work for the guy, but because he really has it right. Uh, his focus is to be brilliant on the basics. You know, let's fill the potholes, clean up the litter, empty your trash on time, because like, quite frankly, people want to be busy living their lives, not thinking about city government. If you're thinking about us, we're probably doing something wrong or we're failing you in some way. So let's take care of the, the basics in the city so people can live a, a wonderfully productive and an abundant life in Memphis, Tennessee. So I encourage anybody who would be interested, just come and check us out. Even if you just come for the weekend, I think you'll leave here a different person. There's so many awesome things from the National Civil Rights Museum to the brand new I Am A Man Plaza that reflects on the sanitation strike that changed the world. So couldn't be more proud uh, to be a part of this. I'm humbled to serve these 650,000 constituents. As I told you, we got on the phone, Chuck. I can't wait to come to work every day. I run to work every day so I can be at my desk at 6.30 in the morning because <laughs> I'm just so to get to work every day because there's so much awesome stuff happening. And, yeah, we've got a lot of challenges, but there's none that are so insurmountable that we can't get through with our grit and grind. That, uh, my friends, is Doug McGowan. He is the chief operating officer in Memphis, Tennessee, one of the guys on the front lines of one of the most exciting cities in the country. Check it out. Check out his work. Check out the great things that they're doing there in Memphis. And uh, stay tuned to Strong Towns. We love to feature places like Memphis and the inspiring conversations that are going on there because it's, it's something we all can learn from. Doug, thanks for taking the time. I really do love the work you're doing and I'm inspired by it and many others are as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for the work of Strong Towns and all the members. Hey, you take care. We'll talk again soon. Yeah. All right. Bye, Fred. Bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity for becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.